Our scripture passage for today is John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. This is the triumphal entry on the first Palm Sunday. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is powerful and that it does its work in those who believe. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Now, these are very uncomfortable, unwanted times that we are living in now. We have suddenly been reintroduced to the oldest traveling companions of human existence, dreaded disease and fear of death. There's a watershed moment as death tolls are rising and unavoidable death hits us in the face. We're watching graphs of case counts and confirmed and recovering and dead. And grief runs deep, doesn't it? As one person put it, if tears were a disinfectant, I'd be invincible. No vaccine or antibiotic can save us yet. We're quarantines, we're staying at home, we're sheltering in place. Introvert or extrovert, your freedom is restricted. Cancel weddings, graduations, events, very disheartening for us. And our responses reveal our hearts. Discouragement, depression, anger, revolt. J.C. Ryle said it this way, trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. I think what we are all realizing by and large is that we are relatively ill-equipped for this current pandemic. This novel virus is waking us up to another reality, and it's one that many push aside. It's a question not on lips, but on many minds. What will happen when I die? Where will I go? Will I go to heaven? Will I go to hell? You see, people are thinking about God again. Now, some superstitiously, some accurately, some are blaming him, some are pushing him away, and some are believing. But everyone's looking for answers. 
In Bible times, God got people's attention through plagues. In biblical catastrophes, the most common answer was worship God, repent of your sins, and obey God. So now that God has the world's attention, hey everybody, you need a savior. Yes, you, you need a savior. The savior, the one revealed in Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and returning. He is revealed in scripture, and he is presented at the triumphal entry, where our focus is today, in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. And I want to point out for you today three insights about this Savior. It's a clear answer for your eager expectation. Now, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is recorded in all four Gospels. This is where Jesus was officially presented to Israel as Messiah. And the first insight that we see is in verses 12 and 13, that this Savior was expected. He was an expected Savior. Now, mercifully, God had promised, even back in the garden, to send a deliverer. The prophets had foretold this deliverer, that a holy God would deal with mankind's sin. Hopeful, people waited for his appearance. Now this scene we're looking at here in John 12 happened in March AD 33, the Friday before Passion Week. Jesus goes to Bethany for a dinner in his honor, the house of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And it tells us in verse 12 that the next day, so the day after the trip to Bethany, on a Sunday, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, there were a lot of people in Jerusalem back then, at that moment. Jerusalem's population at that point was about 100,000 people. But then you had all these pilgrims coming into the Jewish capital at Passover. Could have been up to a million people. Josephus records a one Passover with 2.7 million Jews. On this day, Jesus gets a hero's welcome. They, they take palm branches, verse 13, and they go out to meet him. Now, in those days, in that place, date palms were plentiful, and they were waving palm branches. If you did that in first century Judea, that was a national symbol signalizing a fervent hope of a messianic liberator arriving. Palms signified honor to a victor or a king. 200 years earlier, palms were waved when the Maccabees freed the temple from foreign occupation. And this crowd went out to meet Jesus, a meet and greet with Jesus. Now going out signified an official welcome of a newly arrived dignitary, there was a lot of excitement. Think about it. All these people are coming to Jerusalem for Passover, and then they hear that Jesus is there, and, and they are excited. They are thinking messianic things. They are hoping messianic hopes. They are doing messianic things. And so it says in verse 13, they cry out, Hosanna. You might have heard that word a lot of times. Maybe you don't know what it means. It means save us, Lord. 
Save us, Lord, we pray. Save us now. Give salvation now. The yearning of the hearts of the people had come to this crescendo, and they cry out, Hosanna, save us. We need a Savior. They say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now they're stacking up messianic passages, one on top of another. So they shout Hosanna. It's Hebrew from Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, Lord, we pray. Literally save, literally give salvation now. Now this would have been a very familiar thing for Jews to hear. Part of the Hallel in Psalms 113 to 118, it was sung every morning by the temple choir during the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, connected with the Feast of Dedication and the Passover. This is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 25 and verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what that psalm says. Referring to the Messiah. That's coupled with the King of Israel. Rabbi said that these are the words that would be spoken at Messiah's arrival. In the Old Testament, salvation is connected to the reign of the Davidic king. In Psalm 89 and Jeremiah 23 and elsewhere, people knew that if Jesus were that king, salvation would be his work. And so they're having really a praise fest for the one to come. They're quoting Bible verses. When you see it is written, that means it stands authoritative. It's from God. It's in the word of God that doesn't budge, that doesn't change. So they're having this praise fest for the one to come. Glory to God who saves and delivers. Because this Savior was expected. Save me, the cry of a desperate heart. I hope it's a cry of your heart today. Knowing your need and telling God of your need. He knows your need. Pour out your heart to him. The Savior was expected. There's another insight about the Savior that comes up in this passage. This Savior was not what they expected. This expected Savior was not what they expected. You see, the crowd expected the promised Messiah to lead them to independence politically. The salvation that many first century Jews looked for was political liberation from Roman rule. They're expecting that. The crowd thinks that Jesus is going to conquer Rome. And surprisingly, comes humbly. Look at verse 14. Put your eyes there. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. That's not the entry of a conquering king. He's on a humble beast of burden, not a war horse. He's coming in humble. The donkey signified Jesus' mission was not political. He came to battle sin and Satan and death. Then you see in verse 14, as it is written, he found that donkey and he rode on that donkey as it is written, as it is fixed, as it is authoritative in the word of God. And it's, it's quoting uh, Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. 
sitting on a donkey's colt. A lot of the crowds must have missed that. But here is Jesus presenting himself as the Messiah in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9. Riding on a donkey. Very significant. It means that God had appointed this king, and it's not who they thought. Not a political savior. Not someone they could manipulate. The Messiah that Zechariah foresaw, the, the Messiah that Zechariah 9 verse 11 foresaw, who would bring peace through the blood of a covenant. This is what is said in Colossians 1.22, that Jesus brought peace through the blood of his cross. Now you would expect all of his disciples to be like, yeah, we know all about this, right? You'd expect that, but look at verse 15. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus, verse 16, was glorified, so after the cross, after the resurrection, then they remembered. Remember how Jesus said that the Holy Spirit's going to bring to their remembrance everything he said? Then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. He's riding on the donkey that Zechariah is referring to. This king, this savior, this one who was expected was not who they expected. And another insight, really one last insight about the Savior, and then we're going to kind of roll through this and see what the Savior is up to for the rest of the time in the Gospel of John. And really, this Savior, and here's the insight. This is the biggest insight. You want to write this down. You want to remember this. This Savior expects surrender. This Savior expects Surrender. The expected Savior, not what they expected, expects surrender. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So they're saying good things about him still. And verse 18, the reason why we see that the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. This, this sign of raising someone from the dead, this messianic sign. And then verse 19, the Pharisees say to one another, oh, you see, we're not gaining anything. See, they wanted to kill him, but for fear of the Jews, they wouldn't during Passover. They said, we're not gaining anything. The world has gone after him. That's a hyperbolic exaggeration. It's, it's, it means in general, everybody's following him. They felt, they felt their power grip slipping. There's people crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Please save us. What this leads is us very clearly seeing that this Savior expects surrender. You know, Greeks were going to worship at the Feast of Passover. You go, keep going through John 12, and you see that these Gentiles are coming, and they come to Philip, and they say, we wish to see Jesus. That's, that's a phrase, by the way, that's on many pulpits in many churches. We wish to see Jesus. Preach Jesus. Preachers, preach Jesus. Not self-help. Preach Jesus. This Savior is strong. This Savior is sovereign. This Savior wants surrender. They want to see Jesus. So they go and tell Jesus. Andrew and Philip, tell Jesus. What does Jesus say? Look at John 12, 23. Here's Jesus' answer. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about him dying for the sins of the world. But then he says this, whoever loses his, loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now he's foretelling his death, but he's also telling them, you got to die to yourself too if you want to follow me. He goes on and he foretells his death in verses 27 to 33. Verse 37 tells us many were not believing in him. Well, it goes on to tell us that Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our report? Isaiah 53, 1. So in verse 38, we see Isaiah the prophet being quoted that God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts in verse 40. God knows. God knows all hearts. Jesus knows everything about you. Everything about you. And you see, as you go on, that many believe. Verse 42, leaders even. They were afraid to admit it because they were afraid of, of not getting approval from man. They valued man's glory higher than God's glory. And so Jesus very clearly says, you know, basically, if you reject me, you reject God. If you reject me, you reject God. Verse 48, chapter 12. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words as a judge... The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. See, the Savior expects surrender. So here's what happens. You keep going through the Gospel of John, and on the way to the cross, he is preparing his disciples. In chapter 13, he goes into the upper room. It was before the Passover. He knows his hour to come has come to depart from the world, back to the Father. It says he loved his own, and he loved them to the end. What great love that he has for his own. How much Jesus loves his people. He washes their feet. Gives an example to follow. That a slave is not greater than the master. And then he predicts his betrayal. That one amongst his group would betray him. And then he gives a new commandment. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. All people are going to know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And then he goes on to foretell Peter's denial of him. Here's Peter saying, I'm going with you. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. You get into chapter 14. And he's telling them, do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and take you to be where I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my word. There's surrender. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will be with you. He says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord will send, the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, will bring to remembrance everything I said to you. He said in John 14, 27, my peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. How many of you today are fearful and worried and troubled? Jesus tells his followers, as you're surrendering to me, rest in me, trust in me. In chapter 15, he tells them, I'm the vine, you're the branches. 
Apart from me, you can't do nothing. He tells them, I chose you. You didn't choose me. He tells them, pray. Tells them, you're not of this world. N-O-T-W. You get into chapter 16. He says, I'm telling you all of this. They're still in the upper room. I'm telling you all of this to keep you from stumbling. They're going to make you outcasts. But the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment that many would surrender to him. And then he foretells his death again. In John 16, he says, verse 16, you're going to weep. You're going to lament. The world's going to rejoice. But your grief will be turned to joy and no one will be able to take your joy away. See, Jesus is fighting for your joy. Jesus has secured your joy, believer. He says in John 16, 33, in the world you'll have tribulation. Take courage. I've overcome the world. He says it before the cross. Do you notice that? He says it in the upper room before the cross. It's as good as done. And then you get to chapter 17 and the Son, God the Son, is praying to God the Father, this beautiful prayer. And he's praying about uh, the word of truth. He's praying about the unity of believers. He's praying about glory to come, eternal glory, future glory. And then it all comes crashing. Then it all comes crashing, just like Jesus said it would. You get into John chapter 18, and Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus took his disciples over the ravine, crossed the Kidron, where the blood would flow from the sacrificed lambs, and here is the Lamb of God, ready to die for sin. And he goes to the garden with his disciples. And the betrayer leads this backstabbing procession with torches and lanterns and weapons. The, the Roman officers surround Christ. Fast forward. They put him on a cross. Hours later, death. Joseph of Arimathea, secret disciple for fear of the Jews, asks for Jesus' body. He and Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the one that came to Jesus by night for fear of the Jews, John chapter 3, he got that you-must-be-born-again sermon from Jesus. He, Joseph and Nicodemus, brought embalming spices and bound the body of Jesus in linen wrappings. Near where he was crucified, there was a garden with a new unused tomb. They laid Jesus there. They put him in that tomb. And the curtain falls on chapter 19. And all is quiet. And the Savior is dead. It's Friday. Sunday seems a distant possibility. The Savior made a promise. And his promises are fixed. His promises are secure. It is written. His promises are authoritative. His promises don't budge. His promises don't change. God keeps his promises. 
So he didn't stay dead. He arose on the third day. He is the resurrection and the life. As he said in John 11, he is the way, the truth, and the life. This Colossians 3, 4 says, he is our life. It's the hope of every believer. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The Savior who was expected, crucified, buried, risen, reigning, returned. Now on that first Palm Sunday, that crowd didn't understand the nature of Christ's kingdom or the nature of the salvation that he would purchase at the cross. But they knew that the Davidic king will be the bringer of salvation. But what they missed is that Jesus is that Davidic king that would sit on the throne forever. Jesus is the Messiah that would redeem from all enemies, from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. That Jesus is the one who saves all who surrender. And I realize that the Savior might not be who you expect. See, he's not a temporary relief giver. He's not a genie in a bottle. There's a lot of people, i got to be honest with you, there are a lot of people who say they follow Jesus and they are following a false Jesus of their own imagination, not the Jesus of the Bible. To listen, you think that God owes us. I mean, what do we want? We want blessing, we want relief, we want goodness all the time. I mean, I pray for healing and relief all the time, but that is not the only way you see God work. He is with you in the calm, and he is with you in the storm. Relief is not the only answer. I'm glad that Jesus didn't choose relief. He went to the cross. The Savior was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 tell us, it was the will of God to crush him, to put him to grief, not to give him relief, to put him to grief that his soul would make an offering for sin, for guilt, that he would see his offspring, that he would see many saved. It says that out of the anguish of his soul, he would see and be satisfied. There's propitiation. There's the mercy seat. There's the wrath of God being satisfied by the shed blood of Christ in our place at the cross. And it says the righteous one will make many to be accounted righteousness. There is justification. Christ's righteousness counted, credited, imputed to your account Every believer, everyone who has faith in the finished work of Christ, Isaiah 53, 11 ends, he shall bear their iniquities. He bore your sins. I started the service reading some verses from Psalm 118. There's a lot of messianic goodness wrapped up in that song. In Psalm 118, verses 19 and 20, the psalmist says, it's kind of a curious thing that he says, and it kind of makes you wonder, like, what, what's he getting at here? 
He says, open to me the gates of righteousness so I could enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then he says this in verse 20, the gate of the Lord is the gate that the righteous will enter through. Now the psalmist was rejected by the nation, tossed away like a useless stone. And he came to the temple gates. He grabbed hold of the, the altar, the horns of the altar. Jesus came to Jerusalem to the shouts of Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus was rejected by the nation, tossed away like a useless stone. And he went to the altar as the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. Hebrews 9, 12 tell us, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of animals, but by means of his own blood, securing eternal redemption. Palm Sunday triggered an avalanche. Palm Sunday triggered an avalanche. You see, the Jews wanted to kill him. The leaders wanted to kill him, but they said, not during Passover, for fear of the crowds. And what you see happening is that in God's time, decreed from eternity, Christ presented himself to die. Acts 2.23 tells us, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 4, 27 and 28 says that they were gathered in Jerusalem against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, get this, listen to this one, to do whatever your hand, God, whatever your hand and plan predestined to take place. The cross happened the day the lambs were sacrificed during Passover. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us once for all. The just for the unjust. That's why Peter could say in 1 Peter 1.19 that we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Perfect lamb of God. And so Christ's death makes believers righteous. We can approach God. Hebrews 10 tells us that. We have access to God. So those gates of the righteous of Psalm 118 are open to us. We can pray. We have ability to draw near to God now through Christ. Through Christ, we have access to God the Father by the Spirit, Ephesians 2.18. This unexpected, unexpected work of the Savior. He was expected, but not what everyone expected, maybe not what you expected. But he does the unexpected. And the Savior expects surrender. 
See, many cried that day, Hosanna, save us, Lord, we pray. And soon they cried for crucifixion. If you say that you want Jesus to save you, or you claim that he has saved you, the only appropriate response is surrender. Salvation means surrender, folks. But what did people do through history? Here's the pattern. Miracle, idolatry, plague, repeat. Miracle, idolatry, plague, repentance, repeat. What did people in Jesus' day do? Well, as soon as the novelty wore off, we're out of here. Bread and fish, the blind seeing, lepers cleanse, the lame walking, but don't ask for my life. What do we do? Don't mess with my lifestyle. Don't tell me to turn from my sins. But everyone in trouble wants salvation. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Everyone in trouble wants a rescue, deliverance, healing. If you're drowning, you want a strong swimmer. If you're, if you're caught in a burning building, you need a firefighter. If you have cancer, you need a doctor. If you're under the wrath of God, you need the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign, almighty God, Savior, who, by the way, lovingly and very graciously and mercifully draws you to himself so that you would cry, Hosanna, save me, Lord, that you would surrender all. But crying Hosanna and then declaring crucify him is a complete contradiction. Crying Hosanna and denying Christ is a complete contradiction. Crying Hosanna and disregarding God's word is a complete contradiction. Saying Jesus saved me, but I don't pray or study the Bible or have good relationships or proclaim the gospel or sacrificially serve Jesus, or otherwise obey the word, is a complete contradiction. Wanting salvation without surrender, that's like a drowning person pushing the rescuer away, or accusing your rescuer of being demanding. Please hear me. Salvation demands Surrender. Jesus won't save you if you don't want him to leave you. Surrender is best friends with repentance. In Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Grace Church, you know, I, I quote these verses so often, probably in almost every sermon, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And some people might say, well, hey, you didn't say repent, so I can just believe. Problem is, you got the word Lord in there, folks. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That implies repentance. You put Lord and Jesus together, it expects surrender. The Bible is very clear. Repent and believe. 
turn from your sins and trust in Christ. You don't need to clean up your life, but you need to say, I don't want what I've got, and I want Jesus. I want him to save me. I want him to change me. I want him to rearrange my heart. I want him to make me new. See, in the Bible, when you see believe in the Lord Jesus, you say someone uh, preaching repent. When, when one is present, the other is assumed. Think about the biblical plagues. Those were wake-up calls to repent and believe, turn from sin and turn to the Lord and trust in the Lord. But what kept happening over and over again? People got relief. They went back to their sinful ways and spurned God. What brings you to repentance? Let me tell you what brings you to repentance. Misery. Some of you are in misery right now, and God is bringing you to repentance, mercifully. Misery, not plenty, brings you to repentance. By God's kindness, restores and forgives you. His mercy alleviates the misery that sin brings upon you. And that mercy alleviates the misery even if your circumstances don't change. Wrap your mind around that one. Repent and believe, trust and obey. But we all have this just, just really bad problem. We have this bad problem that we think everybody else is worse than us. We think we're better than everybody else. Here's Jesus' perspective. Everybody's guilty. You're guilty, I'm guilty, everyone's guilty. Paul said this, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. Here's Jesus' perspective. Luke chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. He asks this question. He says, do you think that the 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse offenders, worse sinners than all the others in Jerusalem at that time? He says, no. He says, unless you likewise repent, you will likewise perish. There's no partiality with God. He doesn't play favorites. It's not how you were brought up or how good you have been through your life. Think about it. The biblical response to catastrophic global events, floods and plagues in the Bible and pandemics and epidemics throughout history and even now, the response, worship God, repent of your sins, obey what God says in the word, trust in him. And see, it's not a quick cure and then back to self-centered. It's not a quick cure and then back to self-government. It's not a quick cure and then my way again. You see, Jesus has his own agenda. You gotta align with his, with the will of God. Think about this passage that we looked at today in the triumphal entry. Think about how many times it is written, just like it was written. See, if, if you want to know, if you're wondering what's going on, and, and you want a word, you need a, a word of comfort, you need a word of assurance, go to the word. Go to the word of God. Speak the word of God. Quote the Bible. Live it. Obey it. Practice it. Do it. You'll notice that the Pharisees are like, oh, you know what? Well, we uh we're losing our, our power grip on, on everybody. Everyone's following Jesus. They weren't helping anybody to, to find Jesus there. You gotta help 
versus hindering people. You can't put up roadblocks to people coming to know Christ right now. Do you realize that right now, this whole idea of all the quarantines and all the social distancing and all the carefulness and putting on N95 masks and making masks. And praise God, by the way. Thank you for everyone who is making masks and helping people. And you got the tip of the spear, medical and fire and police and everyone out there and everyone pitching in and doing things. Praise God. Thank you for all of you that are doing all of that. But think about your days right now. I said last week, it could, it's easy right now to waste a day. And sometimes it feels like you're working 24 hours a day. But here's the deal. This could be the most self-centered time of your life or the most God-centered time of your life. It's your choice. Redeem the time for Jesus in the gospel. Trust God, be wise, encourage others, love others, help others see the life-giving truth of the word of God. And as you feel like sometimes your hope is waning or you're feeling depressed and downcast as a believer, hold on to your expected hope. Life isn't falling apart. It's falling into place. The world is not out of control. God is in control. The sky isn't falling. The chicken was wrong. The sky isn't falling. The stars are shouting the glory of God as they were from the day of creation. Life isn't canceled. Christian, your sin debt was canceled at the cross. You have confident hope that your Savior will return. That is our expectation and our hope. Now as we, as we bring this time to a close, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you wake up tomorrow morning and you hear that there is a foolproof vaccine and cure for coronavirus. And it is available to all people. Everyone. What would happen? Well, the world would rejoice. We'd be so happy. We would be so glad. And then you find out this, that for it to work, you would need to follow precise guidelines. Everyone would obey. But what if I told you that the cure necessitated continuing to follow those precise guidelines for the rest of your life? Many would reject the cure. Many would revolt against it and say, no. I want a quick cure. I'm not going to follow this the rest of my life. We talk about what to do in a pandemic. The opinions are staggering, are they not? Everyone thinks they're right. But when you think about salvation, everyone thinks they're right. But only God is. See, all mankind is infected with pandemic, pervasive, putrid sin. Devastating. It's in the air we breathe. It's in our every relationship. And there's only one answer. Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only cure. His cleansing blood gives immunity. Jesus promised and expected, not what you expected, expects your full surrender. 
Loved ones, don't misunderstand the gospel. Jesus said, unless you die yourself, you cannot live. Deny yourself and follow me. Salvation assumes surrender. So entrust your soul to Jesus. Follow his life-altering, precise guidelines for the rest of your life. Know that you, in Christ, been rescued by God and reoriented the gospel and recalibrated to God's living word. You know, John Bunyan said, when a person becomes a Christian, everything changes. The world looks completely different. A greater joy has been found. Find your joy in Christ. Find your delight in him. Surrender to Christ. It is the freest and most joyful way to live. Let's pray Lord God, we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you, Lord, for your powerful word that does its work in us who believe. Lord, we know we are not in control. We know we must trust you, the sovereign God, who is in control. We know it's easy to waste our days right now. May we redeem the time for the gospel. May we keep going to the wisdom of the word. May we be wise and not foolish. We know we cannot figure this out. But we trust you, Lord, and your faithful word, and we believe that salvation demands surrender. And so, Lord, even now, we surrender our souls to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.